So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 35. This will actually be a shorter passage that we'll go through. Because Genesis is such a big story, we've been going through big chunks of it at different times. But today we're just going to focus in on five verses. We're going to focus in on Genesis 35 verses one through five. And so if you have a Bible with you, please follow along there. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the verses um, in your bulletin insert or up here on the screen as I read. Genesis chapter 35, starting in verse one. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. This is God's word. Let's pray together before we move forward. Father, thank you for speaking to us. And just even as we talk about wanting to orient our lives to being more focused on you, thank you that you are a God who's worthy of that. You're a God who through your power and your goodness has shown yourself worthy of our full attention and our full devotion. And so we pray that you lead us during these minutes that we walk through this passage, that you prepare our hearts for what you wanna say and that you give us the strength and the faith to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I wanna talk about in starting out, in fact, let me just put up right now the, the question that's gonna guide our time together. The question that's going to guide our time together through this passage is, how do we devote ourselves fully to God? This has at least a little bit of an assumption in this question, and the assumption is that many of us, if not most of us in this room, would say, that's what I want to do. You know, we we all have the back and forth, and we all have kind of the, the times that we feel really connected to God and the times where he's more distant in our minds, but... I think most of us in this room would say, you know what, that's what I want. I don't want to be wishy-washy. I don't want to be up and down. I don't want to be committed and then lukewarm. I, I want to be fully devoted to God. And the question is going to be, how do we do that? And just even as we get into that, we, we do have to ask ourselves how we've been treating God in our lives. Have we been treating God as somebody who's good in moderation, but we don't want to become too fanatical? Because there are things like that in our lives. For example, for me personally, baseball season is about to start. It's a good gut check for me where I'm really excited about watching baseball again. I'm really excited about following it. But there are times during baseball season where I have to reel myself back in and say, all right, there's nothing wrong with baseball. Baseball is okay, but moderation. Don't go crazy with this. You can become too fanatical and it can take over your life and that wouldn't be good. Too much baseball. There is such a thing as too much baseball. But then there's other things in our life that it would be really foolish to just go halfway with. For example, getting a haircut. (laughs) Once you start down that road, you got to finish it. 
how is it that we're treating God? Are we treating God like, all right, well, a little God in moderation. You know, Sundays is good and, and that's positive and reading a little bit of the Bible is important and reorienting your life and, and trying to walk away from some of the things that we're commanded not to do and do some of the things that we're commanded to do. All that's good, but let's not go crazy with this whole thing. Let's not get fanatical. Are we treating God that way? Are we treating God like, hey, if I'm in, it's gotta be all the way. If I'm devoted, it's gotta be full devotion. I need to go all the way with this, which is where we are led in scripture. Jesus does not give this half measure option. He doesn't give us this idea that he's gonna be part of our lives, but not the one leading our lives. So it's worth us all asking this morning, first of all, to have the gut check of saying, do I really wanna do this? Do I really wanna be all in? And it's powerful that this is the last story where Jacob will really be the central character because this is kind of Jacob's story. Jacob had these highs and lows. He seems like somebody who's a little bit more led by his affections and led by his emotions. And so he has time, God, I'm all in. I love you. I'll give up everything for you. And then the next thing you see, he's still kind of scheming and manipulating and trying to make things work out by his own devices. He's up and down, he's back and forth. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he's a very relatable character. So we look at our lives and we say, oh yeah, there are the times where I've just read the Bible or I've just gone to church and I'm just, I'm all in. I'm saying, God, I'll never do these things again and, and, and I'll do whatever you call me to do. And then we find later that we're sort of back into our old routines. This is the moment in Jacob's life where the stake really does go into the ground. It's not that he never messes up. It's not that he never sins after this, but this is a moment after kind of being wishy-washy where he really makes a stand and his life is forever changed. And it's an opportunity for us to look at it and say, what did that mean? What did he have to do to make that decision? And what we'll see just in these short five verses is we're gonna see three things that he did and three things that we must do if we're really gonna be fully devoted to God. And we'll walk through those in these five verses. And and I'll tell you them as we go through. And the first one that we're going to see in verse one, the first thing that we must do if we're going to be fully devoted to God is that we must respond. And here's what this means. We must respond because ultimately we are not asking God to co-sign our agenda for our lives. God is speaking. We're responding to what he's calling us to do. So look at verse one. Verse one introduces us to this whole passage and it starts with God speaking. Jacob's called to respond because God speaks. And God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So this goes back to Genesis 28, which is two weeks ago, we went through the story in Genesis 28, Jacob had tricked his brother and so he's fleeing from him because Esau wants to kill him. And in Genesis 28, he shows up in an anonymous town, he goes to sleep, God appears to him in a dream and makes promises to him. And Jacob ends up renaming that town Bethel, which means house of God. And he says, God, if you do all that you promised me, if you take care of me on the way and if you bring me back to this country... And then he sets up a stone. He says, this stone that I'm setting up as a pillar, this will become your house. Which a lot of scholars think what he's actually saying is, eventually I'll come back here and build an altar. I've done part of it. I've put up the pillar, but eventually this will be your house. I'll build an altar here. And here in Genesis 35, God shows up to Jacob and he says, it's time to do that. It's time to go back to where this whole thing started. I promised I would bring you all the way back. It's time to now finish this and go all the way back and build that altar. 
And, and the question that might come up is, well, why hasn't he done this yet? Because last week we went through Genesis 32. And in Genesis 32, what, what we covered is sort of the last obstacle of Jacob getting home. So he fled away from Esau. He ended up living with Laban, who became his father-in-law. He married, well, two of Laban's daughters. More on that if you want to talk to me afterwards. It was a mess. Let's just say it was a mess. Um, he eventually ends up escaping from Laban and coming back. And the only obstacle in his way is Esau. And he's like, ah, Esau wanted to kill me when I left. How am I going to get past him this time? And in Genesis 33, God just miraculously brings a reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. And now there's nothing else in the way. Jacob can go home. He can go to Bethel. He can finish this whole thing. But at the end of Genesis 33, Jacob goes to Shechem. And it's just surprising. We're not really told, why did he choose to do this? But a lot of the commentators think, what went on here? This really never was supposed to be part of the plan. This is Jacob calling an audible here. This is Jacob saying, all right, Bethel is good, but there's an easier path here. There's an easier path and going to Shechem will be smoother and will be easier than going all the way over to Bethel. And what Jacob learns is a lesson that we all should learn at some point is that a lot of times there is an easier path but it's only easier for a little while and then it gets much harder. So Jacob's stay in Shechem is not pleasant. And I'll just quickly sum up Genesis 34, which is a dark chapter. Um, What goes on is Jacob has 11 sons and at least one daughter. He has a daughter, Dinah. She goes into Shechem to sort of check things out and find out what the city is like. And a man in there finds her, thinks that she's really beautiful. And so he grabs her and according to the Hebrew, sleeps with her by force. Dinah's brothers are mortified by this and deeply upset. And so they end up through deception and through violence going in and slaughtering not only the man who did this, but every man in Shechem. And Genesis 34 ends with Jacob basically saying to his sons, you have put us in peril. And you can just imagine Jacob, and we've all been at a a place like this mentally. I'm not saying this exact place where our sons have killed a bunch of people, but we've all been at a place where we've said, wow, I saw this going differently. When I took sort of the easy way, I saw smoothness in my future, and now we're in peril. There are times where we take the easier path, and it's easy for a little while. And then we end up regretting it. And frankly, this is the story of sin. Anytime we experience temptation, part of the big appeal to sin is that it's going to give us something and it's going to give it to us quick. So I'm going to feel relief quick. I'm going to feel pleasure quick. I'm going to save money quick. I'm going to get out of trouble quick. When we sin, we're not thinking way down the road. We're thinking right now what will bring relief. Right then, Shechem seemed like it would bring relief, but it ended up bringing chaos and peril. Jacob took a half measure and now God comes to him and says, it's time. It's time for full devotion. And the only way this is gonna happen with Jacob is if Jacob finally lets go of the idea that he is the one calling the shots and God is meant to just sort of co-sign whatever he decides. The first call of fully devoting ourselves to God is that God is the initiator and we are the responder. We're not looking at our lives as something where he's along for the ride. We're looking at our lives as full devotion to him. And let me just throw, throw this in here real quick. Um, 
the, the time in my life where I felt like God was calling me, where, where I ended up changing sort of my, my major in college and pursuing becoming a pastor, uh, the front, front battleground for this, the, the front thing that, that was going on in my life during that time wasn't the question, should I be a pastor or should I not be a pastor? That wasn't the crisis moment. The crisis moment is that in essence, I felt like God was asking me a question. And this was the question. If I ask you to be a pastor, what will you say? And I remember thinking in my head, well, I'll say no. (laughs) And that's not good. I say this just to say the center of the battleground for me was not, should I be a pastor or should I not be a pastor? The center of the battleground was, am I in charge of my life or is God? And over the next months, the internal wrestling that I had to do finally brought me to the point of saying, all right, I don't know if I'm going to be a pastor for, for never, for one year, for 20 years. I, I don't know what's going to happen with this. But what I know is that I am not willing to lead my life trying to get God to come around to my way of thinking. I need to yield. I need to respond. Our careers, our money, our time, it all belongs to God. God doesn't get one hour on Sunday from you. He gets your whole life. God doesn't get 10% of your money. God owns the whole thing. God doesn't get just some good habits out of you. God is the one that you are fully devoted to. If we're gonna be fully devoted to him, we've gotta change our agenda and respond to his instead of trying to get him to respond to ours. That's just step one. But step two is really the meat of this passage, verses two through four. So step two is that if we're really going to be fully devoted to God, we must respond, but we also must repent. And we'll read the passage in a minute, but repent means that there's something that we're turning away from, that we're saying, I'm walking away from this, and I'm turning towards something else. It's a change of direction in our lives. And so after Jacob gets the command to go back and to build the altar, he decides that there's some preparation that needs to happen with his family before then. It says, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Now, this is going to be the center, but I just want to talk through. There's some other things that he says, if you just kind of look through the passage. He doesn't just say, get rid of your foreign gods. He also says, all right, we're going to purify ourselves and we're going to change our clothes which has the symbolic idea of we are leaving this part of our lives behind and we're going in a new direction. We're even gonna change our clothes. We're even gonna take a shower. We're gonna get this all done with and we're gonna move on to prepare ourselves to fully be devoted to the Lord. He talks about the fact that he's gonna build the altar there. And then as you look in verse four, it says, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, which is a little weird because Jacob didn't seem to ask for that. And so there, there's a couple possibilities of what might be going on with the earrings. Um, possibility number one is that just as they had these idols that they had kept around, maybe also some of the jewelry was used in some way in the worship of these false gods. That's possibility number one. Possibility number two that I think might actually be the right one is that when Jacob's sons went and slaughtered this village, they also carried, a, carried away the spoils of victory. And so it's possible that right now they're saying, you know what, we're not even going to bring away the treasures that we got from this violent act. We're leaving Shechem here and we're moving on to Bethel. And it says what Jacob did. It says, and he buried them under the oak at Shechem. It doesn't say he put them in a bag and sealed it up. It says he buried them. We leave these here. These are part of our past. They're not part of our future. 
But just go back to the beginning of this and we might be scratching our heads and saying, now how did this even come about? How did it come about that Jacob, this man who's meant to be devoted to the Lord, is saying to his family, time to get rid of the foreign gods? Why did they even have these foreign gods? And if you go back to Genesis 31, you find out why they had them. And that's that there was a point where Jacob had got a call from God to say, all right, we're going to leave Laban behind, his, his father-in-law, twice over. We're going to leave him behind. We're going to flee away. And they run away in the night. And before they run away, Rachel, his wife, goes and gets the foreign gods that she had grown up with. And she brings them along for the journey. And then when Laban comes and catches them, catches them, she hides them from him so that she can still have them on the journey. And when we get to Genesis 35, they're still there. At some point along the way, Jacob's found out that this is going on. And it's worth just asking the question, why did she do this? Why did Rachel bring these gods along? And, and why not only that, seemingly a bunch of members of the household are practicing some level of worship or allegiance to these gods. Why is this going on? And when we pause to think about it, I think the answer becomes pretty obvious. The reason she was doing this is almost certainly because she wanted to hedge their bets. And Jacob's got this God and he says that this God is good. And we've seen some evidence of that. He, he seems like he's taking care of us and he's a God who's strong enough to provide and strong enough to protect. But you know what? There's a lot of danger out there. So why put all our eggs in one basket? We'll show our devotion to Jacob's God, but let's bring these other gods along just in case. Let's just make sure we're still okay. Let's hedge our bets here. Idolatry in scripture has a lot to do with hedging your bets. Most of the time that the people of Israel were worshiping other gods, they hadn't stopped altogether their allegiance to the one true God. It's just that they had added in a bunch of others just to make sure. And I know for us, when we, when we think of idolatry, it can seem really distant to us. Like, all right, I don't have anything in my house that I go and bow down to or burn incense to or, or do any of these things. It seems really distant. But one of my professors in college, and I don't know if he made this up or if he was quoting this, but um, when he was talking about a definition of idolatry, he used to say, an idol is anything that you're willing to sin in order to get or anything that you're willing to sin in rebellion if you don't get. An idol is not just something that you bow down to. An idol is something in your life that's not just something that's important to you, but that, that is so important to you that you're willing to sin and abandon God in order to get it. And we have these things in our lives. Financial security is a big idol in the United States of America. And it's not because money is bad and, and even that whole idea of money is the root of all evil. Read First Timothy, that's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not the problem. The problem is when we become so transfixed with financial security that we're willing to do evil in order to get it. That we're willing to lie. That we're willing to backstab for a promotion. That we're willing to cheat on our taxes. That we're willing to do different things that are clearly immoral because I need that so badly. Financial security is a big idol in our culture. But let me give you another one. Another big idol in our culture is the approval of others. There's nothing wrong. Everybody wants people to like them. Everybody wants harmony in their relationships. But you have to pause and ask yourselves, do I want harmony? Do I want other people approving of me so badly that I'm willing to sin in order to get that. 
Am I willing to lie to them? Am I willing to tell them what they want to hear instead of speaking difficult truths to them? Am I willing to compromise and go along with things that I know that I should say no to because having them approve to me, approve me is that important? That's when it changes into an idol. And what a powerful passage here where Jacob doesn't just say, we're putting these in a bag and we're not using these anymore. He says, we're going to bury these which is really easy for him to do physically. It's much harder for us to do symbolically. Say, all right, I'm done with this. I'm going to leave. You know, I I, I know that I have an idol of wanting people to approve of me. I'm burying that in the dirt. And then two days later, we're like, how did this get back in my bag? I don't know what happened. Suddenly, I want people to approve of me again. It's it's much more difficult to do. And and that's why even repentance for us as Christians, we, we could say, well, it's something that we do once. It's something that we do when we come to faith in Jesus. But it's also something that we do again and again and again, because we do find ourselves grabbing back a hold of those idols that we've buried and needing to turn and repent again. And, and repentance is a key part. If you read the Gospels, and in fact, if you're reading in the Bible reading plan right now, in the Gospels, repentance is a key theme. For Jesus, he constantly talked about repentance. The apostles in the book of Acts, they constantly have this call to repentance. Repentance is not something, sometimes we can, we can see it as this oppressive thing. Repentance simply means that we're turning away from one thing and turning towards another thing. It means that we're turning away from a different path and we're turning towards the path that God has called us to. Repentance is something that we have to do if we're going to embrace Jesus. Because you can't follow him if you're still holding on to the other idols. And part of the the beauty of all of this is that we we can look at these things in our lives and we can say, oh, it's going to be really hard to do without these things. It's going to be really hard to turn away from from these idols and these foreign gods that have a pull on my life. And you're right that that at least initially it is going to be difficult. It's something that takes courage. And at the same time, what you'll find is that these foreign gods are really just ankle weights. They're really just things that are holding you down, that are tying you to the ground, that are keeping you from experiencing the joy and the full life that only the God of the universe can bring. When Jesus calls us to repent and turn to him, it's not because he's saying, you've been having way too much fun and it's time to get serious. It's because Jesus is saying, you have bought into gods that are no gods. Think for a second, what was it that Jacob buried? It's not an actual God. It's a bunch of statues. It's a bunch of symbols. It's a bunch of things that aren't even real. When you are giving up your obsession with the approval of other people, you are burying a false God. You are taking off the ankle weights. You're taking off the shackles. You're experiencing freedom because now finally something inferior is out of the way so that you can experience fellowship with the God who loved you enough to send his one and only son to you. And the passage in the Bible reading plan just this morning is the passage of the rich young ruler. And it's a tragic story because the story ends with a man deciding that more important to him than eternal life is his stuff. How tragic. I guarantee you today he still doesn't think that stuff is more important than eternal life. Just ask yourself, whatever that thing is in your life, is that worth keeping you from the life that comes only in Jesus? What are your foreign gods 
What are the things that are keeping you from experiencing the full life in Jesus? What are the things that you need to bury in Shechem so that you can follow Jesus to Bethel? If we're going to be fully devoted to God, we must respond. He's in charge. He's the initiator. We're the responders. And we must repent. There's no way around it. But there's one other thing. There's something neat in verse 5 of this passage, and that, that's that we also must rely. In other words, we got to trust God. So look at what happens in verse 5. Now, the very simple beginning to this, it just says, then they set out, which seems pretty obvious. We think, well, of course, we, we knew that's where the story was going. They said they were going to go to Bethel, so they set out for Bethel. Nothing profound about that. I want to say, there is actually something profound about that. And here's the reason. This, practically speaking, was not a good time for them to go on a journey. Jacob's sons had just slaughtered an entire village. And you can imagine that some of the other villages are looking at them and saying, their time is coming. Their time is coming. And when we get the chance, we're getting revenge on all of them. The smart thing during this time would be for Jacob and all his family to say, we're going to build a fort. We're going to have people on watch. We're going to hunker down and we're going to make sure that we survive this time where, we'll, where we're vulnerable to attack. And instead, God says, nope, now's the time, time to go. And you can just imagine them thinking, we're going to be walking out in the open. We're going to be exposed and vulnerable. If anybody wants to get us, they can get us. So you know what, God? We got to rely on you. You got to be the one to get us through this. And you know what, if you repent and if you really devote yourselves fully to God, you're going to feel vulnerable. You're going to feel exposed. You're going to feel in danger. Because there will be times where you'll know, you'll know I, I can't really devote myself fully to God unless I confess my sin to somebody. That, that's the only way I'm getting out of this. And if I confess my sin to them, they might reject me. They might spread it all around. This might go really badly. I might end up feeling condemned. This could go very badly. I feel very exposed. I feel very vulnerable. Or it could even be financially that you say, all right, if I really take God seriously and if I really start giving generously and and not being run by my money, I don't know how it's all going to work out. I, I don't have the security of knowing how I'm going to be taken care of. When you follow Jesus, you become vulnerable. And the funny thing about this is that in the story of Jacob, just how easy it was for God to take care of this problem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on all the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. And we don't know exactly the mechanics of how this worked, but a similar thing happens a couple times in the book of Exodus. Happens in the book of Exodus when they're fleeing Egypt as slaves, that the fear of the Lord falls on the nations around them. We don't know exactly how God did this, but as they're walking, exposed out in the open and vulnerable, God makes all the surrounding towns so afraid of them that they don't attack. And just a quick question. Do you think putting the terror of God on these towns was something that God found to be greatly difficult for him? He certainly didn't. This is child's play. This is easy stuff for God. Jacob, I would imagine, and his family are thinking, I don't know how this is going to work. This is really scary. God's going to have to do something amazing. God didn't have to do something amazing. This is easy for God. This kind of stuff is not difficult. The things that daunt us are not difficult for God. And so when we get to a point where we say, oh gosh, I could step forward and I could trust him and I could move in this, but gosh, there are problems that I just don't see any way around. Those are not difficult problems for God. And he has no trouble at all working all things for your good as you step forward in faith. 
we're going to be fully devoted to God, we must respond to him instead of asking him to respond to us. We must repent and leave behind our foreign gods. And we must rely on him because otherwise we'll never take those steps. Because following Jesus makes us vulnerable. Let me just take some minutes now and, and let's come back to this question. This question. And, and let's again say, all right, that there's a lot of you out here. I, I believe that this is true. I believe God is at work in this church family. I believe the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. I believe there's a lot of you here right now that are saying, I want to do this. I don't trust myself necessarily to be fully devoted to God, but I want this for my life. I don't want to be lukewarm. I don't want to be wishy-washy. I want to be fully devoted. Then if that's where you're at, then, then let me just ask you the question, what are your foreign gods? What are the things that it's time for you to bury in the dirt under a tree and move on from them? Is it the approval of others? Is it financial security? Is it your own reputation? Is it some habit or hobby or something that you're just unwilling to give up? What are your foreign gods? How are you hedging your bets to make sure that if God doesn't come through, you're still gonna be okay? Because that's what you're called to leave behind. And I'll just say again, we're entering into the season of Lent. This is a great time to take steps with regard to this. In fact, there might be something in your life right now that you're, you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I don't know if that's an idol or if that's just a thing that I like in my life. I can't quite tell whether it's something that I need to utterly give up because it's gotten in the way or something that I just kind of potentially could be a problem. Well, here's my advice. Give it up for Lent and you may find out. You may end up discovering, oh, this is really okay. It was good to give it up, but, but it's not actually that big a problem. Or you may quickly into it realize, wow, my life is deeply upset by me giving this thing up. It clearly had more of a hold on me than I thought. Use this time that Christians all over the world are using for fasting and repentance as a chance just to try it out. Just to say, I suspect that this thing has more of a hold on me than I'd like to admit. So you know what? I'm going to cut it off for 40 days and we'll see what God does. But let me also give an encouragement because there, there's no doubt in a room with this many of us, there's no doubt some of you that you have not yet made this decision. You're saying, all right, I, I'm not ready to say, yep, I'm all in. I'm ready to fully devote myself to God. You, you haven't even become a Christian. You said, I, I'm not sure I'm all in with that. What you've got in this passage is you have the stakes before you. Jesus said, consider the cost before following me. In fact, there are even some people that Jesus basically talked out of following him. He said, I want you to know what you're really in for. I want you to know that this is no half measure. I want you to know that it's going to be difficult. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require a lot of difficulty. But you know what? What you're giving up doesn't compare with what you're gaining. Because there's never going to be a time in eternity that you're going to look back and say, wow, I really wish that I wouldn't have followed Jesus because I had to leave behind some stuff. Satan has the market cornered on the quick fixes. Jesus has the market cornered on eternal life. So if you're here this morning and you're wrestling through this and saying, I'm not sure I want to do this, here's my invitation to you. My invitation for, to you is not become more religious. My invitation to you is not start following some rules and try to be more moral in your life. My invitation to you is repent and place your faith in the only one who can bring eternal life. Repent and respond to the fact that whether you like this news or not, 
You are a rebel against God. But the good news is that God sent his son to save rebels like you and I. God sent his son to sacrifice himself. And please, again, just remember this. When we turn away, when we repent, it's difficult and it's painful at times. But when we repent, we are turning away from something that's not even a real God to the one true God who alone has life in him. And if you want to make the decision this morning to do this, to place your faith in Jesus for the first time, you can talk to me or somebody else afterwards. You can mark on your communication card that you want to make this decision. Don't allow distraction and don't allow procrastination to keep you from taking the step that leads to life. And in a minute after I pray, what we're going to do is we're going to get a chance to respond as God's people to this call to this call the first full devotion. In fact, the first song that we'll sing together is really a song about repentance that leads us through an opportunity to look at the foreign gods in our lives. This is an opportunity for us to hear God's word and respond and say, you know what? No more half measures, no more lukewarmness. We are all in. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are worth our full devotion. Thank you that you're worthy of our attention and that repenting and putting aside our foreign gods is not just the right thing to do, but it's the wisest thing we could possibly do because we are leaving behind something empty and walking towards the God who gives forgiveness and new life. Father, please remove from us our idols when we're unwilling to give them up. Use your power to take them away. And Father, show us glimpses of the joy and the fullness that we experience when we leave behind what's inferior to experience the new life that you bring. And Father, I want to especially pray for anyone who right now is not a believer and is wrestling with whether or not to take this step of faith and give their lives to you. Father, remove any obstacles, remove any doubts, lead them to the joy and the celebration of the new life that comes in Jesus alone. We pray in Jesus' name.